reading from 1 Kings, chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said. My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servants and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Welcome back to some and welcome for the first time to others to this series on King Solomon. I claimed he was the world's richest man. Uh, his income, we calculated, was about £1 billion per year um, in days when the global economy was considerably uh, smaller than it is today. Last week we looked at the wisdom of Solomon. Today we focus on his worship and his achievement in building what certainly would have been one of the great wonders of the ancient world had it not been destroyed before this was compiled, the temple of King Solomon. It was a breathtaking structure um, for its artistry, for the craftsmanship, for the, the sheer quantity of gold that covered it. Let me just give you an excerpt from chapter 6, a little bit earlier in our reading, and describing the temple. Chapter 6, verse 20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. And the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, you guessed it, he overlaid with gold. There was gold everywhere. We heard about his incredible income, but a large proportion of it, it seems, went on this one building project. It was a breathtaking place, but not only for its um, architecture and its expense, but also for its significance. And I want us to focus today on the prayer of Solomon to the Lord to dedicate this temple he built. And you'll see if you open your order of service, we have um, a longer reading than we heard. We just heard an excerpt from it. And I want to ask the question, and this is a, a trickier question than it might first appear. Here's the question. Did God ever live or dwell in the temple of Solomon? And was it ever a place where God lived? And it is a, a tricky question because the answer is yes and no. We, we read that when they completed the house... And the cloud of God's glory came and filled it so that it was not possible for anyone to enter the house because of the glory of the Lord that was there. Let me just read you um, the end of the construction. It, it reads like this. Then the cloud, um, so when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now this doesn't just mean it was damp 
uh, like the days of the London smog, or there was a problem with the drains or anything like that. Um, in the Bible, previously, the cloud of God's glory had symbolised God's presence very tangibly with his people. So back in the days of the Exodus, you remember Moses led the people through the, the wilderness, and God's presence was um, symbolised there as a, a pillar of cloud. And in case you just thought it was a... I can't remember all the clouds you had to learn in, in geography. There were the cumulonimbus and the altostratus and the cirrus and... Uh, this particularly distinctive sort of column-shaped cloud, lest you thought it was just a, a strange meteorological phenomenon, like yesterday's uh, red sun. Um, at night, the cloud turned to a pillar of fire, and in the daytime, back to a pillar of cloud. It was unmistakably God's miraculous presence with them. When Moses met with the Lord on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, we're told that a dense cloud came down and covered the mountain along with earthquake and, um, and fire and a very loud trumpet blast. When Moses completed the tabernacle, um, the cloud of God's glory filled the tabernacle. So the cloud symbolises God's presence supernaturally with his people, the Israelites. And now the cloud comes to fill this extraordinary building. So did God live in the temple? Uh, you might say yes. But look down again at that reading we heard in bold type, verse 27. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? Does God live in the temple? Solomon says no. And this extraordinary building is not glorious enough to contain the God who made the heavens and the earth. And there's always the danger, isn't there, that, that humans, in our religious instinct, as we try to do something worthy of God, we end up belittling and trying to domesticate God. So the Apostle Paul, speaking um, to the Athenians at the Areopagus, and seeing around them everywhere all these objects of worship, even one to an unknown God, he corrects their theology. He says, the Lord who made the heavens and the earth does not live in temples built by hands. It would be impossible for a, a mere human being to build a structure worthy of the God who made human beings. Uh, he's the maker of our dwelling place. He built this universe. Uh, he made the Big Bang go bang. He gave to human beings life and breath and everything. We can't help God out with a house um, or with attention that he seeks or anything like that. So does God dwell in the temple? Well, yes, the cloud is there, but no, it can't contain him. There's this paradox, is it yes or is it no? Well, just look on again, do that paragraph. Give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said... My name shall be there. So God isn't there, but his name is there. So the plot thickens, as you might say. There's glory there, God's name is there, but he can't be contained there. And then you'll notice, um, in each of the paragraphs through this long prayer, um, it always finishes the same way. Look at verse 30. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. 
Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Where is God's dwelling place? God lives in heaven. He doesn't live in this creation. He can't be contained in Solomon's temple. He, he dwells in heaven. So what is the point of this extraordinary temple? God's in heaven and we're on earth, says the writer of the Ecclesiastes. Don't underestimate the gulf between us. I think that the, the solution to the conundrum is that this is the place on earth where God in heaven will listen. I'll say that again. This is the place, the temple is the place on earth where God in heaven will hear. If you want an analogy, it, it's as if the temple is a kind of theological telephone box. Now, telephone boxes don't mean much to us now because we've all got one of these. You think, what's the big deal? I can, um, I can make a call from wherever I am at my convenience on my mobile. But just think yourself back 20 years before we had mobile phones, or probably about 25 years before we had mobile phones. And um, if you were stuck in the country somewhere um, and you needed to get a message out, you had to drive to a telephone box, and sometimes one every five miles or so, marked on the Alden Survey map, and you'd put a call through. You couldn't get in touch back home just from anywhere. You had to go to somewhere with a connection. Well, actually, in the ancient world, heaven and earth were not easily connected. God dwells far above and beyond. And yet Solomon builds this glorious house and he says to the Lord, verse 29, May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear. Now, it's quite a, a striking phrase. I don't know if you notice that in verse 29. There's something odd about it. Look again. May your eyes be open so that you will... Well, I would have finished the sentence. Your eyes will be open so that you will see. Or I've said, would your ears be open so that you will hear. And I don't think it's that in the ancient world people didn't understand the senses. You don't need to know that much science to know that if you do this, you can't hear anything. And if you do that, you can't see anything. I think they, they knew what the sensory organs were for. But this this very jarring phrase, would your eyes be open so that you will hear? I think the sense of it is, Lord, please will you pay attention to this place. And please notice what happens in this place. And please listen when we pray here. It's the place where heaven and earth are connected, where the phone call can be put through. It's the place where you can pray. Now, as Christians, we're perhaps used to, or those of us who are Christians, are used to the access we have to God anywhere. It's a bit like having a mobile phone. I mean, you don't have to be in a particular place anymore. But that wasn't always the way. And think back before mobile prayer technology. And the temple was a precious place for the ability to communicate with heaven. Next question. If this is the phone box that connects earth to heaven, what kind of calls are going to be put through by the operator? Look at verse 30. Hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place 
And when you hear, forgive. The phone calls that are anticipated are, I'm sorry, I've blown it, please forgive me. And then in every one of the seven following paragraphs, Solomon envisages situations where prayers will be needed. So for example, look at verse 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. Look at verse 35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them. Then hear from heaven and forgive. Verse 37. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers. Or when an enemy besieges them, whatever disaster or disease may come. And when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Again and again and again. Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, Lord, I've messed up with you. I've let you down. Um, I've brought national disaster upon this land. Because of my sin. Because of my ignoring of you. Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's why they need a phone line. To say sorry. And it's as if um, Solomon is saying to God. As he commits this temple to him. Lord, when we need to make that kind of call. Please will you pick up. I don't know if you've ever really wronged a friend. And um, you just said something terrible that the relationship's really damaged. And you desperately need to be in touch with them to put things right. And they let the phone ring. Have you ever had that experience? It's just the most awful thing. The relationship's broken, you need reconciliation, but they won't pick up. And this prayer says, Lord, please will you hear? And actually, um, the situations across, we haven't got time to look at it in detail, but through these seven paragraphs, please do look yourself after, um, they get more and more serious. Um, it begins with um, a, a defeat by the enemy, it, then it's a famine, um, then it's, um, uh, and then finally, verse 46, the worst of all, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to your enemies who take them captive to their own lands, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly. And they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you towards the land you gave them, towards the city you've chosen and the temple I've built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, now it's not really a phone box, is it? Because they're, they're now so far away from the temple. God has banished them from the land in exile. It's, it's symbolic of just how bad the relationship has got. There's a huge distance between them. It's now not even a phone box. It's more like a phone exchange. Lord, will you put the call through 
even from far away in Babylon, the land of exile. And God says, yes, I will. I'll take the call. Now, one of the greatest tragedies, of course, as the book of 1 and 2 Kings continues, is that the people do sin against God. There is a famine. There are defeats. They are carried off into exile. And then worst of all, the temple is smashed up. It's like someone taking your phone and stamping on it. So you can't even call to say sorry. The relationship with God is broken. He's far away and and there's no way to make the call. Until the Lord Jesus comes. Uh, And you remember famously gets into a dispute with the Pharisees about the temple. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. But he was talking about the temple of his body. I've never thought of Jesus like that before. Jesus, the phone box. I don't mean that irreverently. Jesus as the one who will put the call through when we need to turn back and to ask for reconciliation. Here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive.